Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey Geekscapists, I'm sitting here in the office of my good friend Jack Kenny for a brand new Geekscape episode. We talk movies, video games, comic books, pop culture, all that stuff. And I like to sit down every week with a storyteller to talk about um, maybe the latest in what's going on in our industry. Um, but Jack and I have been friends for a couple years. And um, for those uninitiated, he was the showrunner on, I think, w- Warehouse 13 would be where the geeks uh, would be most familiar with him, Warehouse 13 on, on Sci-Fi. And most recently, I saw Jack's name pop up on episode four of Jessica Jones season two. Yep, that what was you, me. <laughs> what you got going on? We're in your house. Are you, there, there no, I'm just be, going to shut the door. There so. will be disturbances. Yeah, that's right, watch this. There that we go. The, now it's not, there it is. I wanted, the, I wanted the Foley the door closing so that, <laughs> you know... <laughs> So so um, so Jack and I we meet for lunch. How often do we meet for lunch? It's been, it's been a while this past time. Two or three months. Every, every two three months. Every two and three or three months we we sit at his reserve. When you table. really start missing me, <laughs> you texted me, which is great. I, know. I was like, I texted you. I was like, can you have lunch tomorrow? He was, yeah. I said, okay, I can't. Yeah, um, that was a mean trick. I know. And so so Jack Sorry. so Jack will text me and or I'll text Jack and we'll sit for lunch and catch up on what he's writing, what I'm writing, uh, and we'll talk writing. Which mm-hmm. I think is, but you you recently did some directing. I did. I directed a short film that I wrote. Um, that was based on a play that I wrote ten years ago about my uh, a couple of relatives that came to visit me for what felt like a year one weekend. Are you serious? Uh, and at the end, <laughs> twenty minutes in, I wanted to kill them both, um, which I'm sure no one can relate to on your audience. I'm sure nobody's <laughs> ever wanted to ruthlessly murder a relative. <laughs> so ten years ago, so about ten years ago you wrote this play. Did the play ever go up? Yeah, but did it uh, it was um, at the time it was called Circus Theatricals. Now it's a new American theater. Okay. Um, this guy I went to college with, uh, went to Juilliard uh, uh, acting school with uh, Jack Stalin. He and, and his wife Janine run this fantastic uh, um, repertory theater and school here in LA called New American Theater. They just moved to back over to the Hollywood area. Um, anyway he Right after my aunts visited, in, in, in some way to calm my husband down, who was really shaking with anger at the way they treated him. <laughs> when did this and happen? This when, was, the, this was, when was the original incident? 2005, I would say. And are your aunts still with us? One is not. Okay. So and, you're, and one won't care. Okay, this. so these are your mother's sisters? My father's sisters. My father's sisters. Yeah. And, yeah. and they come for a weekend. Yes. I'm, I'm in they, your home. This is the home that they come visit yep, in? they were here. Okay. And, and you've been to my house. It's a nice, it's a three-story uh, house in Los Feliz. And honestly, we pulled into the driveway, and the first thing they said was, ugh, I bet there's a lot of stairs in there. And it was that kind of a weekend. Of, Are they bigger uh, women? No, 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 they're not. It wasn't, so they it's, it's, not a, it's not a size issue. It's, it's a communications issue. Their, their preferred mode of communication is to complain. Is to <laughs> complain. It's, it's complainese. They speak companies, and um, it's it's very um, 
it just gets exhausting after a while. Right. You know, everything is like, you know, they're like, why you black t-shirt and a black pair of pants? What, you couldn't think of another color? Yeah. I mean, everything. This is all colors. Yes. It's, <laughs> this well, is all colors. Well, you have that argument with them. Good luck with that. <laughs> it wouldn't get me um, very far. Yeah, it would just not, it's not worth it. It's not worth going down the road. So they, I mean, you know, I remember Michael trying to be kind and say, so what kind of wine would you like to, I can get some kind of wines for you. Uh, we only drink white Merlot. Mike said, um, Merlot is, is red. And he said, yeah, maybe in Hollywood. <laughs> Where are they from? Chicago. Okay, so they're from Chicago. Chicago. And Chicago's flat, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, it's pretty flat. Hence yeah. the Windy City. You and, know. And, and hence them looking at a, a, a house built on a hillside. And well, they grew, up on one, they grew up on one level. Yeah, they, not uh, anticipating uh, stairs. I think, there was, I think there were stairs to the basement to their crafting room, but mostly... <laughs> Just your driveway I goes mean, up 100 feet. <laughs> I know, I know. And listen, it's, but I drove them up that. And I took them to see Wicked um, down at the Pantages. And I had front row mezzanine seats. For Wicked, which is, you know, good seats. Great. And uh, we walked in the theater and they said, so where are we? The front row mezzanine. Like, Upstairs? <laughs> they got an elevator? No, it's, oh, no. A, it's a hundred-year-old theater. They got stairs. Sorry. <laughs> so it was always, it, everything, it was a, a weekend of complaints. So in order to get over this weekend, um, I, my, my, I, said, I said to Michael, let's just make a list of everything they said. <laughs> okay. my, my mom was with us, too. Because she knew them She knew them when oh, she was younger. She was, she, 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 she was laughing her ass off the whole time. Like, I know these women. I'm just going to stay over here. I'm going to hide over here. And so we made this long, like, four-page list of everything they said. Like, your toilet seat's too small. <laughs> Stuff like that. <laughs> the reverse not being that your ass is too big. No, no, they, uh, that would never occur to, to them. But so, uh, you know, all these complaints. And honestly, within a, like within a couple hours later, my friend Jack calls and says, hey, we're doing this one-act play festival, comedy play. You got anything? I said, you know <laughs> yeah. what? Give me a couple hours. I'll call you back. And I just fashioned it into a 15-minute play of their arrival into the kitchen and the discussion that happens. And and uh, we put it up at the. It was a curtain opener for the first act, first night of the plays. It was gangbusters. It went huge because, because a, I'm not a bad writer. I come up with some funny stuff. And b, everybody has that experience. Right. That to me, the most, the, the best, the most successful of anything, movie, TV, film, play, is is um, relatable experiences. Sure. And also big budget. But you know, <laughs> if you can't afford the two hundred million dollars on your movie, a relatable experience will get you down the road. Right, and so I think relatable characters, people you know, people that you know, you can. So it went very well, and then a few months ago, I think in October, my friend Braxton Molinaro, who's a young actor here in L.A. Um, and also a producer, he produced an album called Guns about. Um, I was telling you at lunch about gun violence and guns and the guns in the country and all that sort of. Thing. It's a great album. He just shot his first music video on it, and um, and so he said, I, I want to produce a, a, a short film because I need some film on myself as an actor. I'm, you know, he's been here a year and a half and he had trouble getting arrested like everybody else has been here a year and a mm-hmm. half. And uh, I said, sure, I've got this script um, of this guy and his two aunts. And he read it and he was, oh, my God, this is great. What can we, uh, who are we going to get to play the ladies? And I said, well, let me, let me poke around. And I sent it to my friend Jane Lynch, who said yes immediately. And then I sent it to, uh, I was thinking the person who would compliment her best is Kate Mulgrew who I did Warehouse 13 with. Mm-hmm. And I sent it to Kate and I said, well, at first I sent her a, no, a text saying, hey, any chance you're going to be in LA anytime in the next three or four months? And she said, why? And I said, well, there's this movie that I'm shorting a short film. You'd be really funny in one of the parts. And she said, well, send it to me. And I sent it to her and she called me on the phone. She said, I'll come to LA for this. When do you want me to be there? Well, wow, wow. And I said, well, we'd like to do it like the third week of January. She said, okay, I'll clear those dates from Orange is the New Black. I'll be there. And I said, well, you can stay in our guest room if you want. She said, good, that'll save me some money. I'll stay in your guest room, and I'll fly myself out to L.A., and all done. And so she came out, and the two of them were great. And they're both Midwest ladies. Right. So they know these women. Jane Lynch is where is she from? Jane's from Chicago. Right. And Kate's from Iowa. I mean, they know these women. They know, because they they both read it, and they said, oh, we know these women. I know these women. We know what they're like. And, you know, and I, in my script, they're a little more... Uh, exactly. I mean, for lack of a better word, racist than <laughs> than they were in real life. Sure, but at the same time, people like that who use terms like that, I I don't believe they mean it in a necessarily derogatory way. They're compartmentalizing. They compartmentalize everyone in their lives. You're the fat one. You're right. the short one. You're the you're the Oriental one. You're sure. the black guy. You're the I mean. I mean, we have a president now who does that. Sure. You know, you're the crippled guy. You're the, you know, that's what they do. They make fun. I mean, those are the yeah. words. They make fun of people, you yeah. know. And, they, and those, are, but, but my aunts would never make fun of somebody. They it's would never use way. it. 
It's just the language that my, they grew up learning. It's the language they spoke. My grandmother in Groom, Texas, uh, I don't think I've ever told this story on Geekscape, Geekscapist, but my grandmother, my father's mother, when she got put in a home, finally, and she had to move out of Groom, she moved to Amarillo. This is around the time that Oprah had her lawsuit against the, the cattle ranchers. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Remember when Oprah went out against steaks or, you know, red meat or something? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. The, yeah, cattle, yeah. No the cattle ranchers yeah. sued her. They had to try the case in, in Amarillo, and Oprah had to shoot her show in Amarillo. And my grandmother, in the last year or so of her life, would go on these walks around the neighborhood. And she kept telling my aunt and my father about the really nice N-word lady. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, and my, it's like oh my god! Like she was born in 1909, 1910s. Yeah, well, like, I mean, it was in books. Shit, and Mark like, Twain used it in books. It's not like it was a word that wasn't very commonly used on both sides of the fence. But the, the but it was Oprah. It was Oprah. She was talking about. She would see Oprah on her walks and yeah. refer to her as the nice uh, that nice uh, lady. Yeah, and it's like oh, Granny, you can't say that. But I mean, how much do you? When she can't even recognize her own grandkids at that point, like yeah. how much can you possibly? Yeah, you're not going to. She's not going to make any movement on. on the field. <laughs> Rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. You're not going to get any yardage out of that conversation. Yeah. And, and my, you know, and my mom, whenever she would, you know, rest her soul. My mom was the most loving, sweet, gentle person you could ever want to meet. But when she would describe someone who was who was black, she would say, "Oh yes, there's this lovely woman I work with. She's black." And I would say, "Mom, you you don't have to whisper. She knows it, and probably everybody knows it. It's not." <laughs> You don't Everybody have to, with a blind she, she would say it's, she would whisper it like I don't want to sound offensive. Like yeah, but the whispering is what makes it sound <laughs> offensive. If you just say she's black, then you're just describing someone the way they look. You're not saying I have an opinion about her. She's black. You know, it's just that's an, that's an opinionated statement. But so, but again, there's not the idea of any kind of. Uh, of of negative energy from in that direction right. would never cr- cross these women's mind. Right. It's all just descriptive. Like, oh yeah, you know, yes, the Jews are very good with money. Yes, the that's it's yeah, the Jews, the Jews. <laughs> yeah, everything. I mean, it's like it's it's just it's old stereotypes that haven't stopped. And listen, you see those stereotypes. We were talking before. I saw. I've been watching Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, yeah. the new one. Those stereotypes are, you should pardon the expression, raging. Across that show, right. there is one character who could not be more of a stereotyped gay man. Now, I, I don't, I don't have any issue with him doing it that way. I don't like to watch it; it makes me uncomfortable. I imagine this current generation th- has their own opinion of it. I don't know, but in it, so there, to is, me, there is too gay. Well, it, it's not that he's too gay; it's that I, it feels to me like he's putting it on right. for the show. He's playing this almost minstrel-level gay character, that it's a minstrel show. I always thought Will and Grace was a little bit of a minstrel show. Okay. It's, you know, listen, if, if a character can walk in the door, sashay across the room, flounce onto the sofa, flip his legs up in the air and cross them and get applause and a standing ovation, that's a minstrel show. Mm-hmm. That's not a story point. That's not a joke. That's I'm laughing at how gay he is. That's what they, that's what they often do on Will and Grace, and that's one of the reasons I have trouble with it. But you're, I you're friends with Will. I know, and Eric's a great guy. Yeah, yeah he, he didn't. He didn't write. He doesn't write it. He just and he right. plays this. He plays the less version of that. And I, I think and Eric's a great guy. Listen, I think yeah. I imagine Sean Hayes is a great guy. It's just my own personal taste. I'm not taking issue with yeah. them. I don't want to start a protest or a course, movement or a boycott. That Will and Grace did more for the for the advancement of same sex marriage probably than anything in the last twenty years. Well, if yeah. Will and Grace hadn't been on the air, Michael and I wouldn't be married today. You, I recognize really? their value absolutely. I recognize. I don't know enough about it to. Well, they made it okay because to me everything changes with societal mores, right? The Supreme Court does its thing per its per its rulings and precedents and laws, but you can't deny that. What's happening in the world influences the way they think. Sure. And I think most people, after before Will and Grace, I think people thought, no, marriage is a man and a woman. And after Will and Grace, people thought, ah, they seem okay. Let them yeah. do what they want. It's fine. I mean, they're not, they seem like people like you and me. And, and I think that's a huge step when you make, when you normalize something. I don't know what, what baffles me. And, and by the way, I, I, I still applaud them. I, I hope they stay on the air. I, I, I just, for me, it's just not my kind of thing. Same thing with Queer Eye. Great they're doing it. Fantastic. It's just not my, it's just, it sits badly with me because of my own past experiences and what I've been through in the way it filters through my filter, mm-hmm. you know? So 
like I said, I'm not. I'm not. I don't want to start anything. No, you're not. Yeah, you're not. I'm not. I'm not I, I, bravo. Right. But what what baffles me is why we haven't been able to do the same thing with race. Why is this country still so racist? I mean, I imagine there's plenty of homophobia, especially across uh, you know the red states. But it feels like racism. It feels to me weird in a weird way, worse than it was in the '60s and '70s. It feels like there's. That people feel, and maybe it's because of this whole Trump movement, that people feel more of a of, a, of an ability to say what they want to say about race and 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 you know uh, political correctness be damned. But I feel like racism and sexism too. I would I would not leave out sexism. I mean, we we showed in the last election that we're actually more sexist than racist. We ele- we elected a black president, but we wouldn't elect a woman. Right. Would you say that a lot of that? Is just how much you're being barraged by in the increase in of, of media messages. That I mean, the difference between the '60s and '70s and today is it. It may have. I mean, I don't know if it got better or if it got worse. I know we're getting more of it. Does that make sense? We're it might more be. There, there may be it. more information. There may be just more information and more uh, news. You hear more news now. I mean, I don't remember there being that much uh, child abuse when I was growing up. I'm sure there was the same amount. It's just you hear about it all now. Right. Uh, you know, same thing. But although. Nobody went in and shot up schools when I was growing up. I don't remember that even being a... I don't remember an incident. It wasn't Columbine one of the first major incidences of that yeah. happening in this country? So things do change suddenly. I mean, that's become a thing now. You didn't have that, but you did have the, the UT Tower, right? You did, you did, I mean... What's the, uh, what's the UT the, Tower? The University of Texas, when the guy got up there in 67 or so. And oh, yeah, yeah, it yeah, was, yeah. It shot his mom and then shot a bunch of students on the University there of were, Texas. There were small... There were right. isolated incidents like that, but it, it, there's something that feels almost normalized about it now. Mm-hmm. You know, you you don't hear oh, a newscaster it's every saying, other day. We've had we have another school shooting and blah blah. Like, what that would be? That would be the UT. That would be huge news. Yeah. And now it's like, oh, there it happened again. And so I think society has changed a little bit, and in some ways for the better, and in some ways for the worse. And and so, and I don't know if the information age is what I don't know if that allows people who want to do that kind of thing to find. Emotional support for it. Maybe, maybe the fact that we have such social networking and such internet connectivity between each other, it allows somebody who wants to do something like that find others who can support his views and that he or she or hers. Right. Well, I don't think there's been a single female school shooter. Um, but <laughs> right, it's just, correct. Yeah, but it, but it feels to me like, and maybe you're right. Maybe it's because there's so much information out there and there's so much uh, news that that we just hear about it more and it feels more more powerful, but. I don't know. It, it, it feels to me like same-sex marriage made great strides very quickly. And it feels to me like civil rights and, and women's rights have in some ways taken some steps backward. And I don't understand why. Including the eight years under Obama? Um, the, not you, necessarily. You, you said I mean? Like, that's how this could feel like a regression. It feels like that way. I think we're feeling it more now because what Trump did was unleash that sort of darkness in his base right. he, he unleashed that kind of yeah it's okay for me to say i hate blank it's right. okay for me to to you know to wear a nazi armband if i want not pay taxes you know? right yeah yeah but but um i think it was there during i think it was bubbling during obama maybe even because of obama right I, i'm sure there was a very virulent strain of racism happening because we had a black president and there was a resentment because of it and it bubbled over finally in 2016 with trump basically giving voice or giving you know support and credence to that kind of thinking not specifically he would never he would never say that but but Donald Trump has always been a racist he went after the central park 5 his mm-hmm. his father and he had all those problems the with, the, with apartment yeah. apartment complexes not and, and i mean it's been you know i wouldn't say that he's you know, I, he's a racist. I'm sorry, but he's a racist. But he's, like your argument with the 60s and 70s, the platform has just gotten more accessible. Well, I think Does what that happened... Sense? Like now there's... Now the, whatever microphone you have is a bigger microphone. Yeah, there, that is absolutely the case. And I think the 60s and 70s was the first time it felt like there could be equality. Right. There wasn't, and there was still all kinds of problems, especially in the South, but the 60s and 70s was the, the mid-60s. You know, Johnson and his and his great society and, and passing civil rights legislation felt like the first time we were saying, oh, we can fix this. We can erase the shame of our country, you know, since slavery and the Civil War and, and the Jim Crow laws. We can, we can start to 
erase a little of that shame by making strides in the other direction. It felt like for the first time that might happen. And then, and then entertainment took up that, that uh, baton and ran with it. Norman Lear changed the conversation, you know, by, by, by putting those shows on the air and by, and by putting those conversations in people's living rooms that they weren't having those conversations What before. kind of shows are you talking about? All in the Family, family. Maud, mm-hmm. The Jeffersons, uh, one, uh, um, um, oh, I don't remember all the names of the shows, uh, Dynamite, what was... Uh, oh, that, I thought uh, that... Oh, man. That was not The Jeffersons. No, it was... Um, uh, it was uh, good some, Times. Some, uh, good Times. Yeah. Um, all those shows, I mean, that was, that was the first black family in the living room. Right. You know? Now, Dick Van Dyke did something in the 60s that I thought was incredibly progressive. Dance with Penguins. Was that the... No, I was making a joke about Mary Poppins. Oh, no, no. Well, that would be progressive in a different way. But no, they did. There was an episode of Dick Van Dyke when they first brought their son home from the hospital. Okay. And, and Dick was convinced that they'd switch babies in the hospital. It was a huge mistake. And he was, he, was, he was panicked about it. And Laura kept saying, this is our baby. Would you relax? I know this is our baby. I can feel it. He said, no, no, no. I want to meet... Because he had somehow this other couple that was there that, that he had got contact with the hospital and there was another couple there who took their home, baby home at the same time. He said, let's just meet them. Let's meet them and, you know, we'll see. We'll see. And they came to the door and Dick opened the door and he just started laughing. It was a black couple. <laughs> so right. he knew that they had the right babies. Right, right, and the right. black couple started laughing too because they knew what he was asking and so it was all this. So it was really, it was the first time that not only do we have a racial issue front and center, but they were laughing about it. They right. made fun of it on both sides. We both saw it was silly. We both enjoyed that part of our ourselves. And Captain Kirk is kissing all sorts of different colored women. Yeah, yeah, that right? was true. But Including that was, that was the future. Right. That was Getting the... away with an awful lot of shit in the future. <laughs> um, but... How much responsibility do you feel in 2016, 2017 to put those kind of social issues in your work? Because uh, we, we had a Jessica Jones special where we looked at episode, season two. And I, I believe you all wrote that season prior to this, but I mean, clearly it was bubbling. Um, oh, we wrote, we wrote season two. Jessica Jones started in June of 2016, and we, we finished the script since December of 2016. So the tail end of it, the elections happened, all this stuff, but you guys were before the Me Too movement, all that stuff, and yeah. there's a ton of stuff in Jessica Jones season two where... Some, well, some guy it. calls her a bitch or calls her something yeah. and she stops and she's like, I'm going to smash your head against the mirror. Well, that you know was always I mean? our, you know, our interpretation of the character was that she was incredibly powerful, incredibly strong, not just as a superhero, but just as a woman. And that sure. she would not take any shit from anybody. None of them would. None of the female characters on the show did. Carrie Ann Moss didn't. Um, I mean, a, a big lesbian character, a big open lesbian character that didn't take shit from anybody. Powerful, rich, um, incredibly good at her job. I mean, that was... Another character, Trish, again, trying to be way more than just a radio talk show host about no, social issues. She starts to become Hellcat, it yeah. feels like, in the middle yeah. of this. So, so it's always been a show that embraced and, and forwarded the notion of strong, powerful, smart women who can run the world and run their world as easily as male characters. Mm-hmm. The male characters, if anything, with the, 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 the sidekicks and the bad guys and the you know, lower levels. I don't think there is a strong... There's not a strong male character that I can think of on the show that is... In, in the limelight, in front and center, it's all it's all forwarded by women. To me, if you know, well, uh, I feel like the neighbor. I mean, you're co EP on this series, correct? Malcolm, you mean her assistant? No, no, oh uh, no, I think I was. Oscar, I, was, the, uh, the I feel like Oscar is doing the best by his son, which yes. is which is like its own strength, its own oh, absolutely thing going on. Well, I'm not I, saying they're not good like, characters. Yeah. Now, there are plenty of good male characters. Sure. Malcolm is trying to be his best and learn to be a PI. I mean, there are there are plenty of strong male characters. Somehow they don't feel as strong as the women, which I think is cool and interesting. Mm-hmm. And what it's what excited me when I watched season one. It's what made me interested in doing the show and becoming involved with the show. Is I loved that take on the world. I mean, I it's one of the reasons I made um, H.G. Wells a woman mm-hmm. in Warehouse Thirteen because it felt to me like let's shake it up, let's shake up history a little bit. There's no, I mean, you know, we had a, we had a very logical past for that character, and and uh, you know we were trying to spin it off into a series. Uh, HG, and, and That's cool. to make her eighteen an eighteen ninety five sort of New York City Sherlock Holmes. Uh-huh. She teamed up with a with a um, uh, an ex New York City cop who got fed up with the corruption of the New York City Police Department in the eighteen nineties, and um, and her she and him were going to solve crimes. And our big bad for season one was uh, Thomas Edison. Did you and, see the Have you seen the photo of Mark Twain with, with Tesla? Oh yeah, I have. I and think I like have seen that's that picture. A, like that felt like a series to me. That there's an actual historic well, yeah. photo of yeah. Tesla 
with Mark Twain. And I was like, what adventures did they, what mysteries I, did they solve? I think if Houdini and Doyle had been successful, we'd be able to do Twain and Tesla. Yeah, there is a, but, there was a show, wasn't there, recently, where it was Harry Houdini and Arthur Conan Doyle yeah, teaming up. Yeah, Houdini and Doyle. And it didn't it was, do well. I didn't see it. I, I, don't, I don't know anything about it. You're it's a cool the problem. Idea. <laughs> you were part of the problem. Yeah. No, kidding. Who knows? But it's, it's uh, um, I, we were, ABC wanted to do HG. Mm-hmm. And they wanted, but they wanted us to get a British partner uh, to, to produce it with us. And it would it have expensive. been a spinoff from a Sci-Fi Channel show. Um, it, not a spinoff per se. It would have been. It was a whole new take on the character. So you, so you were jazzed about H.G. Wells whenever you did Warehouse 13, and were like, I've got a million more stories. I can take yeah. this. Yeah, we had a lot of good, cool stories for mm-hmm. her. And but we could not get a British broadcaster on board. We went to all four of them, and they all said no for various reasons. And we had a we had ABC. ABC, yeah. ABC said, "You're on the air. If you get a British partner, you're on the air for for ten episodes this summer." And uh, they we just couldn't get them. And I think they would never admit this, but I think they didn't like us making their H.G. Wells a woman. I think it was like, "No, you're you're fucking with our history. He's one of our heroes. You're not going to make him a woman." That's you, Britain. You know, I think, I mean, yeah. and I can't, I can't necessarily say that if somebody came here and said, I want to do a series about Abe Lincoln, but he was a girl, and uh, he was a lesbian, he put, he put up, wore the fake beard, and I think people might go, mm, sounds a little jokey. Do, yeah, <laughs> I, mean, do, I mean, I know that the broccolis are the, are the broccolis, but with something like uh, a franchise, which I, uh, Geekscape, as you know how I think that's a, it's a dead, deadish franchise to me, is the, the James Bond franchise. A black James Bond with like an Idris Elba and something like that, like something that would reinvigorate sure. Bond. Absolutely. Do you think that, that there is a similar protection? I no, I don't because, because I know the Broccoli's own it. I know it's like it's like a family that owns James Bond, but right. But I think if you made it today, right. it would not be an issue. I think my issue was my. I was saying that that I, I was I was screwing with the with the gender of their of their revered of one of their most revered uh, writers. Sure. And you know, I think if I'd said Dickens was a was a woman, I'd had the same problem. I think that they're saying you're screwing with our history. I don't know that it's necessarily a misogynist attitude. I don't think they didn't like it because it was a woman. I think they didn't like it because I changed it. Right. And but I don't think I think you could recognize doing that with Bond because Bond was always of his time. And I think to say that James Bond today was a black man, absolutely, why not? Because that's very much of his time. Because I'm sure there are black agents in the in the service in England. I don't sure. think there'd be an issue with it. But there weren't any. Well, there were famous female writers. Absolutely. Maybe if I'd done, you know, uh, Shelley, it would have been different. Yeah. Um, you know, was but, Mary Shelley popular before the before her? You know, with all those authors, you have to think of like them potentially only being famous after postmortem. Yeah. So like probably I don't know. You think Shelley was popular upon publishing. I think it was from from what I remember reading about it. It was a very successful novel when it came out. Beatrix Potter, female. Uh, is that a dude with a name like Beatrix in Britain? You never tell if it's Beatrix a dude. Beatrix Potter or was a was a woman. I, now now we had an, we had an artifact from Beatrix Potter. Uh, her tea set. I think it's a woman. Beatrix Potter's tea set. Wasn't that it? I have to look it up. <laughs> Does that now make sense? So? I'm sorry. I'm starting to think about the yeah. other potential characters that. But, but the thing with H.G. Wells is it's sci-fi. Yeah, well, it, yeah. the thing that, that appealed to me about it is we were saying that here's this woman who has, the, who has this brilliant mind for science fiction, for invention, for, for imagining the future. And, and in this world of Victorian England, she would never get the time of day. So she uses her brother as a front mm-hmm. to you know, publish her stories. And he says, you'll be the face of H.G. Wells. That's fine. I just want to have the adventures and write about them. And she was okay with just... Living the life while Charles, her brother, did the actual publishing. It was and, the H.G. Wells we yes, know. Yes, he went to the cocktail parties and smiled and nodded and said, yes, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And she was out there having the adventures and she was fine with that setup. Uh, and a I had a whole, for a series. I had a whole backstory planned of when H.G. Wells, when she was a child, broke her leg because actually H.G. Wells, when he was a child, broke his leg and he was bedridden for a year and that's when he started thinking of all this stuff. And we had a relationship with her and Charles, where Charles took care of her. And we, we had a whole big, huge backstory plan that we'd see flashbacks of it and stuff. And, and um, no, is it, 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 somebody, listen, it's still timely. I'll be able to get it on the air eventually, I hope. I think it's a cool idea. When you um, were a kid, were, were you into all that stuff? I mean, No, were, not at all. Like, what, when you grew up, like, what were you into? We were playing cops and robbers in the woods. I mean, when I was a kid, you but know. You wanted to be an actor. I did. I wanted to be yeah. an actor. I wanted to be a comedian, a comic actor. Not a comedian, but a comic actor. I wanted to be Groucho Marx, W.C. Fields, 
you know, that, that, those are my heroes. Those are generations before you, though. Like, they, yeah, like, but still, that's what's on TV. I watched the Marx Brothers on TV. I watched WC Fields movies on TV. I, watched, I mean, remember when I grew up, there was no VHS. There was no movies on demand. You watched what was on when it was on. So you kept a close eye on the TV guide. And when you saw a Marx Brothers movie, when I saw a Marx Brothers movie coming on, I made sure I was awake and in front of a TV set when it came on. Same thing right. with Fields or Buster Keaton or um, Chaplin. I was like, eh, I could take or leave Chaplin. He was fine, but it felt a little, he felt almost acrobatic to me. In I never, I always felt like Chaplin's stories never wrapped up sat in a satisfying manner. I felt like, like Keaton was always the guy who by the end of the movie, every loose end was going to be tied up. Yeah. But you have something like, the you know with I just remember watching the end of the gold rush, mm-hmm. and the guy the, the the criminal murders a police officer, yeah, and that's the last you see of him. Yeah, you never the, the bad guy never gets his comeuppance at the end of the gold rush, and you realize that in the the Chaplin verse, there's, yeah. there's some police killer like wandering around somewhere, and Charlie Chaplin's just in there like like slurping. Like, like, it was a simpler time. Yeah, I was like, "What are you doing? You're playing with potatoes." Yeah. Like, dude. well, because because the the wisdom in the moment was people are more interested to see what happens to Charlie Chaplin than anybody else. Right. So follow his character and his character only, and don't worry about anybody else in the movie. And there was no such thing as the thought of a sequel or a continuation or that that world existed beyond that movie. But uh, um, those are yeah, your was, heroes. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, Chaplin. I recognize the genius of Chaplin, of course, but it's he was never just just never. I just never connected with Chaplin the way I did with Groucho and and uh, and W. C. Fields and and uh, Abin Costello, even Laurel and Hardy. Laurel and Hardy to me were. I would watch. You know, there's there's a mo- there's a movie. I don't remember the name of the movie, but there's a there's a tickling sequence where this woman is trying to get this <coughs> deed, deed out of Stan Laurel's pocket, mm-hmm. and the only way she can get to it is tickling him, and it is impossible not to watch that scene without laughing. Because Stan Laurel's laughter is just infectious. He's just, <laughs> I mean, he's just all over the place. And, right. and it's just the simplicity of those characters. There's a little dance that he and, and he and Ollie do out in front of a saloon in one movie that you just can't take your eyes off of. But um, yeah, they were my heroes, and I and I was just sort of enamored of them. I wasn't into history at all. I mean, I liked history in school. I was very interested in that element of it, and I, I, I found that fascinating. But I didn't really, I didn't read comic books. But then, no, very few of my friends did. We all played outside all day. Mm-hmm. I mean, you get out, you get up Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, and you head out. Right. You know, and you're out for the day. Same thing on Sunday. After church, I'm going to go play in the woods. And you have to get hosed down when you come back. Yeah, the poison yeah. ivy. Get all the poison ivy off you. Mm-hmm. But it was, you know, we just played outside all the time. So it wasn't, you know, there, there was TV, you know, on variously where we could watch certain things, but... You know, I remember asking to stay up to watch Red Skelton, which was on at eight thirty. Oh wow! Because I had to be in bed. I had to be in bed by eight when I was that age. When you um, so so how did you get into writing? Um, I was uh, I well, I'd always the way I got my first writing job because it didn't sound. All I'm saying is it didn't sound like you grew up reading a lot of the stories or this and that. I yeah. read I read about the same month that every kid okay. in, read in the sixties. Um, I read the I read the stuff we were supposed to read, and I read some other stuff. My father, I never read as much as. As much as my father wanted me to read, because he mm. was always on me. Why don't you read more? You, you know, sit in front of that idiot box all day. You should read books. But you know, I made a lot. Of, I made a pretty good living on the idiot box. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I um, take that. Down. I started writing. I wrote some political stuff for a political cabaret we did in New York in the in the early '80s, and then I had an audition for a series called uh, Square One on PBS. It was a math series. Uh, math series. Reggie Cathy was in it. Um, and and um, who just recently passed away? Mm-hmm. Reggie was played the um, uh, Frank Underwood's black friend on on uh, House of Cards. Oh wow! Uh, anyway, Reg was on that series and a bunch of other people. And um, I had an audition for it when it first started, and they said bring in two monologues. And I'm like, what? Do I, I don't know what to write. Or I don't know what to bring in monologue wise for a math series. So I wrote a couple. I wrote one monologue about all of the odd numbers going on strike to protest they're being called odd and. Um, Wonder where I got that, <laughs> and then uh, another a, model, uh, a scene a scene between Zero and his therapist because uh, he was in therapy about being feeling he was nothing, yeah, <laughs> no, had no value, had no worth. That's creative, and yeah, then they but they read those and they said we don't we have no interest in you as an actor, but as a writer we'd love to hire you to write some episodes, and that's when I joined the guild in '87 and started, and I wrote a bunch of episodes for uh, Square One, and then went back to acting. I got. I got cast in the national tour of Fiddler with Topol, and I toured on with that for two years. And we did you know, seven months on Broadway, and then uh, moved out to LA and started acting in LA. And 
I was really bored acting in front of a camera, just bored out of my mind. Why? Because it's sitting around. Start and stop, start and stop. Well, start and stop and wait for this, wait for that. And the parts you get as a guest star or day player are not usually that good. So it's mostly just waiting around. And while I was waiting, I just thought, I can, I know I can write these sitcoms as well as um, the ones I'm auditioning for. So I wrote a couple of specs, uh, teamed up with a partner, met a couple of producers and got a spec to them. And we ended up getting a job on Dave's World, my partner and I. And um, it was what was I, Dave's World? Dave's World was Harry Anderson, Meshach Taylor, and Shadow Stevens uh-huh. as uh, hippies raising kids, basically. Yeah. And um, and it was uh, it was fun. It was it, it two years on Dave's World, and then went to Caroline in the City for two years. And I just liked writing because I didn't even before I got we got a job. I didn't have to ask anybody's permission to do it. No one had to hire me to do it. I could yeah, write anytime I wanted. Yeah. yeah. Write whenever you want. You go to the Starbucks like you're going to do after this. The party bucks. The party bucks. Party bucks. There's a brand. What is it? A Starbucks Reserve. It's like a. It's like if a, a Starbucks had sex with an Apple store and banged out a nightclub. That's what it feels like go. when you walk yeah. in there. I'm yeah. like, uh, this is not a typical Starbucks. I like. Yeah, you go by at night. It looks like Edward Hopper. It's totally. Like said, yeah. You know, if I'm not there, I'm at McDonald's. Oh, I write at McDonald's. That's less Edward Hopper. I know. Yes. I just I find places that are busy and hostile mm. the best places to write because otherwise I'll take naps. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I'll just sleep if, if given you should, my... You should move ability. to New York. There's a lot of places <laughs> no, you would write. You'd be I, very happy writing. I had to move out of New York. when I, I, I left Columbia as fast as I could because I was so... It, there was no off switch for that place. Yeah. It drove yeah. me crazy. It's busy and hostile most of the time. Mm-hmm. Not that it isn't the greatest city in the world. Don't write me letters. It's, <laughs> it's the greatest city in the world. So, so you're writing on Carolina in the City, and then what point did you move to Showrunner? Um, well, Brian and I created a show called Titus mm-hmm. uh, for Fox in 99. It went on the air in 2000 and 2003. And that was our first show on the air. We ran that. And then after that, we were showrunners. And we ran, we ran uh, Wanda at Large for Fox, which didn't only last 10 episodes. It wasn't our show. We just hired to run it. And then um, and after that, Brian realized he was rich and didn't have to do this anymore because his, his husband's David Hyde Pierce. Brian, okay. Brian Hargrove was my yeah. writing partner. Uh, Brian Hargrove, who I went to school with as well. He was my writing partner until um, 2004. Uh, but he, he just he let me know. He gave me some advance notice. He said, I'm only going to do this for another year, and then I'm out of here. Because um, Dave wants to move to New York, and they're going to live in New York, and that was fine. And so I, that's when I wrote Book of Daniel, because I needed to write something on my own that was edgy and out there and made people go, ooh, cool, cool writing. I didn't that, think anybody would ever make it. And that was in the middle of Titus? That was, no, I wrote Book of Daniel in 2004. Four, okay. uh, right when Brian told me he was gonna, he was ready to take it, take a take a walk, and I thought I had to write something that was page turnery and that made people realize I could write an hour long, and in addition to half hour, because I already had a half hour pedigree, um, and I also saw the writing on the wall for sitcoms. They were, you know, going to be fewer and farther between. Why is that? I blame uh, um, two things: Ally McBeal and reality television. Mm-hmm. Because Ally McBeal, sorry, my fan is coming on here. Is it going to screw up your sound? Uh, I don't know. I don't, how do you? I can. I think I might be able to turn. Hang, uh, can fine. you pause it? Yeah, yeah, I'll pause it. Let me. Let me. Uh... Okay, so you were talking about. Well, I had just said just I said... saw the writing on the wall with sitcoms where sitcoms were going, yeah. and you said, "Why is that?" Yeah, well, I, I just want to know why is that because I think that the post Seinfeld Friends long running sitcom, you know, that was ninety nine. Late nineties. Late nineties was the heyday. The nineties yeah. was must watch TV. And, and it felt NBC. like some things fell apart after that. Well, or I think, out. like I say, Ally McBeal and intern- and uh, um, reality television. Ally McBeal showed that you could do comedy in hour longs, and I think they were one of the first. Maybe not the first. I don't have. A, I'm not a, histor- a historian, but they were one of the first that showed you could actually be pretty funny in an hour long and still have pathos and drama, and you could mix. It was for a sort of dramedy, and um, reality television. Same thing. There was a sense of Real and a lot of these people had were funny. They would do funny things. They were they would say funny things. They were humorous in a very real way. So you have real feeling hour long being funny, and you have reality being funny or finding humor there. And suddenly the four camera staged uh, uh, sitcom feels fake, feels false, feels mm-hmm. I don't know. Some of them sneak past it, you know, and some of them still sneak past it. friends. But if you if you look at the older stuff, it still feels almost like a, it has a fake broader. The laugh that you can hear the audience laughing, it doesn't feel real. Right. And so while there is a place for that, things like Big Bang Theory still work, you know, most of the good, most of the successful half hour comedy now is single camera, no laugh track, and feel as real as possible. Sex um, and the City. 
Sex and the City was, yeah, I think that was even late 90s too, but that right. was also real single camera, no mm-hmm. laugh track, and had drama in it. Most of them had some dramatic element to right. them too. Um, so really the difference between, the difference came between, there used to be hour longs and sitcoms. Now the difference is hour longs and half hours. Um, because it, it, I think the word sitcom got a negative connotation. It just I knew that there was going to be less work in sitcoms. Right. I knew that I, if I was going to survive as a solo writer now, I not only had to prove that I had talent beyond the partnership, but that I could venture into other realms and successfully. And Book of Daniel got me a lot of recognition because it was a, it was a script that a lot of people read and they had good response to it. And that's all I designed it for. And then when it got made at NBC, it was the biggest surprise to me. I mean, I remember when, when Kevin Riley, who was running NBC at the time, called me at home and said, I want to buy your script. And I said, I said, Book of Daniel? And he said, yeah. I said, have you, have you read it? It was the one hour. <laughs> it was the one hour. Yeah. If you haven't seen it, it's, you can see it all on YouTube. All right. eight episodes are on YouTube. God, you know, why should I ever see a penny? But um, they're all on YouTube. And, and it's, it was a really good, I was, it was Aidan Quinn, Ellen Burstyn, James Rebhorn, Allison Pill, it's an awesome cast. Um, I had a really good cast. I had, you know, and where did it come from? Where did the idea come from beyond this this professional need? Well, it was sort of influenced a little bit by Michael's family. Michael is, has, comes from a very you know waspy Episcopalian family, and that fascinates me in terms of you know the 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 secrets and the secrets and lies that that work through every family. But the, something about the way wasps handle it. A. R. Gurney used to write plays about it. It was it was just fascinating to me. The whole wasp mentality is fascinating to me. And um, they uh, and I also I was always also always fascinated by the life of a priest. I was raised Catholic, and the life of a priest was very specific. But Episcopals can get married, and I thought, wow, add the complication of wives and kids to the notion of serving a church and a community in God, and that might be a really complex, complicated world. And I added to it an addiction to Vicodin, uh, which I was going through myself at the time, mm. and um, and a daughter who sold marijuana, and a, a gay son, and another adopted Asian son who was uh, fucking one of the one of the other uh, churchmen's daughters, sure. and all of a sudden it was a great, cool soap opera in an interesting world that hadn't been explored before. My biggest mistake with it was I had uh, Daniel talk to Jesus once in a while. Jesus yeah. would suddenly be sitting next to him, and it wouldn't be... Do you feel like, like a let out? Like it's almost like... Oh, no, I'm just not... I'm a gay man writing about Jesus. Right. They didn't like that. Oh. I got... I got... I had some death threats. I had some... Uh, I mean, the, the, the um, American Family Association and the Parents Television Council council which in 2006 was very powerful because remember we were in the middle of a war two wars and george w bush and the right wing had control of everything and it was a it was they were not going to let some you know homo from hollywood write about their jesus right and so that was problem that got me in big trouble religion in general on television on network television was very dangerous they had done cable would have saved it today Today it would be yeah. today they'd read the script and go well put a lot more sex into this this is, not, this is boring <laughs> right right, you know, right they wouldn't uh, today all that, all would that be, stuff you just described oh it's so run of the mill today yeah uh, but it would do it would do fine on network today sure it would have done fine on cable maybe a year after that right but ad supported network television I mean the AF the American Family Association of Parents Television Council came out with three hundred and fifty thousand emails sent to uh, uh, NBC we will boycott every. Anybody who advertises on this show, three weeks before we aired, just no one because had even seen it was a personification it. of Jesus. Just because, yes, it was a personification, and they said he's got this priest who's a drug addicted priest, and like, you don't think that exists? You really? Oh, don't think yeah, that? yeah. You know, I had that's, they, some, that's some of the better things they're addicted to. There was even some people that took issue with. Well, he has a, his friend is a Catholic priest, and he needs some help finding somebody. And his, you know, his friend, the Catholic priest, has a, a few friends, in you know, a few Italian friends who might be able to help him. And I got uh, some shit about that, and I thought. Really? You don't think the Catholic Church is involved at all with the Mafia? I mean, I'm not saying that they're one and runs the other, but I'm saying there is, there is some crossover. Right. I grew up in the, in the Catholic Church in an Italian neighborhood. I know there's crossover. I've seen it, and we've all read about it. And I, and I thought, do you want me to write about the real scandal of the Catholic Church? Would that make you feel better, yeah. the one that's actually in the papers? No, you probably don't want that on TV. So why don't you just back off? And um, the Catholics left me alone, but, but the, the real born-agains and the fundamentalists came after me big time. I had there was a lot of Christian support for the show too. Don't let me. I don't want to give the wrong impression. There was there were there were Episcopalian blog uh, bulletin boards and blogs, and people really liked it. Mm-hmm. And it was very because it was a very human, loving portrayal of 
the church of Jesus, of men, men who work in those, in those fields, and just the family troubles that you go through in those, in those environments. And so it, was, it, it, did, it got some good reviews, but they had zero advertisers. Burlington Coat Factory was the only oh, advertiser wow. that stuck around with us. Everybody else left, so we, we were canceled after three episodes. What caused the Vicodin? What now caused... we're getting all personal. Like, when you got into Vicodin, like, what was the story? Oh, uh, it was, um, uh, I had some foot surgery. Uh-huh. And, 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 and I had to have some recurring work done on my foot over oh. a period of, like, six or eight months. And uh, I had to take Vicodin for each time, and I just got to like it. Uh-huh. And then I discovered you could order it online, which wow. is something that, you know, nobody should ever do. Right, right. <laughs> and I just got wrapped up in it. And this is, and I'm, I've oh, never smoked pot. The dark web. I've never smoked pot. Right. I'm I'm such a a wimpy little virgin boy, I you know I I I drink once in a while I have a drink it doesn't do anything I'm like I can put down a drink easily, but Vicodin man that got me that grabbed me by the balls. How hard is that to I mean somebody I've been straight edge my whole life so I don't have a lot of like you I don't have a frame of reference too much on what that stuff does but how hard was that process of and and how 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 scary was it for you to to like identify that and be like okay I. If I, like, when did you know that there was a problem? Oh, I think if you're taking 25 pills a day of anything, you'll know it's a problem. absolutely. So I kind of knew it was a problem a a couple of years before I stopped doing it. I knew, I, you know, but like every addict, I told myself, I've got control of this. I'm taking, I even I even made sure that I didn't drink while I was taking Vicodin because you're not supposed to mix alcohol with acetaminophen. Sure. It's very dangerous for you. Now, I was very careful about my, the way I handled my drugs and um, and and I was I just I knew that it was wrong. I knew mm. that it was bad for me. I knew that I shouldn't be doing it, but the feeling made it worth it because it's just you feeling of euphoria for me. Some people can't take Vicodin at all. They hate it. They hate the way right. it makes it feel. Um, I loved it, and and so um, when I got back from doing Book of Daniel, I finally realized I have to stop doing this stuff. Uh, I have to get off this stuff. So I went to AA, and AA really. Uh, gave me a terrific roadmap, not just for why was I taking Vicodin, why did I feel like I needed that extra help, and where, what was missing, and how could I find that help, that support somewhere else, but also it gives you such a great roadmap for living. I don't know why they don't teach the 12 steps in elementary school. Right. Because it's just about taking responsibility, trying to do well, being of service wherever you can be. If somebody asks you for help, you say yes. I mean, it's not, these are not, earth-shattering new concepts that we don't know about. It's the golden rule. My friend, uh, a friend of mine, uh, I, I would put these, you know, as, as I've gone through, like, my divorce and my rewiring of my brain through meditation and, and books, 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 I, uh, I started to tell my students this thing that I was telling myself was that it's just progress, not perfection, right? Like, yeah, aim for progress, not perfection. Yep. And a friend of mine came up to me and said, are you an AA? Yeah, that's and an I AA was like, well, and I was like, he goes, that's, that's like the founder of AA says that. Yeah, and and I don't thing. know where I had heard it. I just remembered that I had started to say it to myself. Be like, all right, dude, like you don't have to be perfect because you, but it's almost like the rule, like uh, the, the idea I give to friends who have, you have those friends who want to write and they don't know how to write. And, and I say, hey, just write two shitty pages a day. <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. like just, just get, get your, just, progress. just yeah. do some progress. And, and two shitty pages is such an easy do what's in front of you. Yeah. That you don't you don't have to write Moby Dick in a day. You just right. have to write two shitty pages, and you'll find out that you end up putting the ben- the pressures gone, and you end up writing five shitty pages or two good pages or something other than two shitty pages. You'll just do well. It. There's nothing that, there's nothing that talks that, that embodies progress, not perfection, better than television. Right. Because the, you know the fact is it's it's a train that's moving down down the track, and it may not be perfect, but it's going to get finished. Mm-hmm. And so it's and, and then you move on. So it's just in terms of getting things going. But progress, not perfection. Uh, keep your side of the street clean. Don't mm-hmm. worry about the other side. All that kind of thing comes out, comes out of AA, and I wish they taught it everywhere. Where where do you um, where have you seen missed opportunities or compromises where you're like, oh, that that could have gone out of the park. Like I got to hit that one out of the park, hmm. and for various reasons. The either the either you saw it as a failing, and, and at what point did, did a, like a, a, a perceived failure turn into a good thing? Does that make sense? Um, yeah, I think so. I, I, I mean, I, I have to say, I don't really much think about things when they're over. Sure. I tend to move on pretty quickly. I stay in touch with people from my childhood, and and I, you know, I always, and of course, you look back at things, and I wish 
you know, I think, is there something I could have done with Titus to keep Christopher from boiling over? And is there some, because he was just, Christopher Titus. Yeah, he yeah. was, he sort of lived in anger at the time. And I mean, I haven't seen him in years. I don't know what he's like now today, but he, and he recognizes this. He's talked about it in his one man shows about how he kind of brought down the show almost single handedly. How many seasons have you uh, Two and a half, 54 episodes. And you want to get a hundred of the, the gold A hundred, that was then, these days, 54 episodes. We'd be in syndication and all over, the, all over iTunes oh, if, it, if it was today, but they won't sell it. They won't sell it into syndication. Fox has said, we're not going to do this. Uh, my personal belief is that they, the people who are still in charge of Fox were still there when we did the show. And Christopher alienated a lot of people at, oh, at Fox. Okay. And, and um, I, think he, you know, I think these people who are still there still feel a certain sort of anger about it. And they know that once the show is sold somewhere, you're back in business. Because pretty much everybody who sells a show into syndication ends up having to sue the network and the studio for the money that they supposedly owe them and it gets messy and ugly and eventually people pay out. But it always happens. I don't know anybody who's gone into syndication that didn't have to hire a lawyer and an arbitrator to get their money. So I think they don't want that to happen. And, and um, so they haven't sold it anywhere. It's one of the very few shows I think that's ever been made that's never been seen again. It never, never airs anywhere. Yeah. Uh, I think you might be able to find some of it on YouTube, but there's 54 episodes. But, you know, he just, he was... You know, he was dealing with issues from his childhood and stuff, and and uh, and uh, I just I just don't know if there was anything else I could have said to him to make him just stop and and stop saying bad things about the network president, and stop insisting it be his way or the highway, but sort of get on board and you know row with the rest of us. But I I don't think there is honestly I don't think there is anything I could have said. I think I tried every version of something I could have tried. I don't have a lot of remorse. Mm-hmm. You know, sure, it would have been great if Titus had syndicated and I made a hundred million dollars, but I didn't. And right. and but I don't I don't think I don't think back on things, and and to me, um, that's I don't why think I asked, the same thing with failures. Yeah, well, yeah, that's why I ask if if they were perceived and then they turned into something that. Well, I think the Book of Daniel was probably perceived as a failure. It only aired three episodes. We made eight, and they canceled it after four. Okay. And uh, I suppose that perception of that was, was a failure, but I never looked at it that way. To me. I made this exactly the show I wanted to make, and I was thrilled with it. And I have the DVDs of the eight episodes, and I think it's great. Um, it was wrong. I, I was ahead of my time, or behind my time, or wherever I was. Um, I, it wasn't the right time at the right place, so it didn't work. But I learned something from every experience I ever have. I think we all do. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not special. We all learn something from every, if we allow ourselves to be open to that possibility, rather than resenting it. I don't resent any of the stuff that went down with Titus. I think at the time I was pissed, but. I don't resent, I wouldn't want to go, I don't want to go back. If somebody said, let's reboot Titus, I would say, no, you can do that without me. I'm not going to, I'm not going to go down that road again because it was too painful. But, but, uh, I don't resent, I don't have any resentments about it. I, you know, it came, it did, I I had a great time. I I had a really great time. I mean, I, I pretty much have a great time, pretty pretty much whatever I'm doing, I, I find something to enjoy. That doesn't mean I don't bitch about it. Um, I, you know, I'm just as crabby as the next person. <laughs> I can find something negative to say about anything just like anybody else can. Someone's going to end up making a short film about you. <laughs> yes, that's fine. Go ahead. But, uh, you know, I, I, am my, I am my father's son. Uh, although my, actually my dad was never like that. But his sisters. I, would say, well, they lived, they lived at home with their parents their whole lives. They never left oh, the house. Wow. Yeah, they stayed there the whole time. He, I have a feeling, I, I'm quite certain there was some dysfunction in that family. I don't know the specifics of it, but for, for the three girls, there were three girls at the time. One girl in, in her 40s finally got married, but the other two stayed at home until, well, I mean, one of them just passed away. It's like Cinderella's sisters. Yeah, they just stayed at the house. They never left home. So that's got to fuck with you. I mean, that's yeah. got to take you to a certain direction. And, uh, but my, you know, all the boys joined the Navy when they were 18 and they left the house and they became their own people. Right. Um, and my dad was, my dad never, I don't, he would com- the only time I ever heard my dad complain was in traffic. He hated traffic, and I got that from him in spades. And uh, but I he hated he hated being caught in traffic. He hated idiot drivers, and he would say so. But the rest of it, I, I rarely heard him complain about work, except if it was just exhausting. Yeah. But he never he just didn't complain. You know he he did, he was a depression baby, so he had life so much better than his parents had it that he was just thrilled to be able to you know save money and put food on the table and buy whatever he wanted to whenever he wanted to you know if he wanted to buy a new thing he bought it he was a geek he was a geek extraordinaire he had a ham radio set up 
WB4MCU. That was my dad's call numbers. And really? WB4MCU, and he had ham radios. He built every television we ever had out of a Heath kit. Whoa. He, yep, he built every computer he worked off. He, uh, he built himself. He built all his computers. Because that's when they were monsters. You know, they yeah, sat yeah, on the whole yeah. desk. But he built every computer. He built all the kinds of... He built all that shit. He knew how to do all of that stuff. He taught me electronics and uh, electric, electrical work. He taught me plumbing. He taught me carpentry and, and masonry. And I knew how to, he taught me how to do all that shit. Um, so, you know, he was, he, was, he was... But he was thrilled to be able to do that, you know? Um, and also, building all that stuff for yourself was part of the mentality of coming out of the Depression. Why buy it when I can build it for half the price? Right. So that's what he did. He built my first computer. I wrote on. Really? Um, yeah. yeah. He never really saw my career as a writer. That's the sad, that's the thing that sort of makes me saddest. He died in 87, right before I got my first writing job. And uh, he'd see me on act. He'd see me uh, off-Broadway and stuff. And um, it's funny, he came to see me in The Normal Heart. I was in the original production of wow. The Normal Heart of the Public. And uh, I, wasn't the, I wasn't the original cast, but I joined that production sure. halfway through. And uh, he came to see that. And he didn't know I was gay. Uh, yet, I mean, he knew, but he didn't know the way every the way, the way parents were in the seventies. They didn't want to talk about it. Um, and uh, but he said he, after that play, he said, "Wow, you, that's the first time you really got into their heads. That was really I really never got into their heads that way. That was amazing." And I said, "Oh yeah, it's kind of it's kind of cool." He said, "That one guy had to kiss that other guy. Are they both are they both like gay?" And I said, "No, no, they're uh, I think they're both straight actually." He said, oh, "How do you do that?" How do you kiss another guy like that? Wow. Could you do that as an actor? I said, yeah, I could probably do that. <laughs> you know, like, how, how did you ultimately let your dad know? Uh, we never had the talk. By the, time, by the time I was comfortable enough with who I was uh, in the 80s, uh, you know, and AIDS was out there in, in full force and people were dying. He would, and he was already having chest pains. And I'm like, I'm not going to play that scenario. I'm not going to make his life more stressful. Right. It's fine. He, you know, we never talked. He knew... Michael was my best friend and roommate because I met Michael in 82. My dad died in 87. Okay. So he knew because Michael was always around. He's kept his roommate a long time. Well, he actually said to me, when I got into Juilliard in 1978, he said, just do me two favors. Don't change your name because it was the same as his, Jack Kenny. And he said, and don't be gay. Now, Mm. I don't think any father tells a son he thinks is straight not to be gay. Oh, yeah, okay. You know? You just yeah. don't. Why would it occur to yeah, you? Yeah, my, my father never, no, never no. said your that. My father's not going to say that to a straight kid. Hey, don't right. be gay. Like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Okay. You know, so, so I think he knew. I think he was trying to save me the pain. Because all that anybody knew about homosexuals in the 70s was drag yeah. and jail. And you get beat up. Yeah, get beat up, go to jail, get a miserable, painful life. And, and then they added a disease. And then, and then you add, and then you die of AIDS. Yeah. And that was all they knew. There was no role models. There was no Will and Grace. There was no anything. There was no magazines. There was no, ad- I mean, there might have been an advocate, but it was localized and tiny. That was, the New York native was the New York gay paper, but that didn't make it outside of the village. And I mean, now I see what you're saying about Will and Grace. Huge. Yeah. Huge. For a kid to grow up, for me to grow up, when I was in high school, the only gay images... The only gay adjacent images I had were Paul Lind on Hollywood Squares yeah. and Liberace and maybe Charles Nelson Reilly because they were kind of broad. Right. But that was it. Those were the only possible images. And the rest were people got arrested, you know, put into jail, arrested at rest stops, shit like invisible. that. Yeah, completely invisible. Like, yeah. I mean, you know, the, 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 well, there was a joke once, the, diff, the, the difference between uh, being black and being gay was... It, it was it was harder to explain to your parents that you, oh no 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 black kid had to had to uh, come out to his parents that he was black mm-hmm. you know that your yeah. parents are already on board yeah. but gay was like you know and so we hid like nobody's business I tried I wanted to kill myself at fifteen I oh put a knife to my wrist because I knew Jesus was crying every time I had a thought and I mean it was just and there were no images to grow up watching Will and Grace. It would have been, I mean, and to see our parents watch it and go, hey, that's okay, it's cool, they're fun, they're friends, they're cool, huge. And I remember for myself, the, the biggest images for me was Pedro Zamora on the real world San Francisco. Yeah, I remember and, that. And I remember seeing... That was like the 90s, right? It was 92, 93, 94, somewhere there, and, and Clinton, Bill Clinton spoke at his funeral. Like yeah. just, I remember the Pedro Zamora thing just being... So big, and it's in 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 his his best friend in the house. Jed Winnick has been on the show. He's a comic book author and, and a cartoonist now, and he was then. And uh, and it's been awesome getting to know Judd because his book Pedro and Me is such a, a great document of that time in the real world house and getting to be friends with this person who was 
a public face of not just the gay movement, but the AIDS movement. Because before that, all we all we had was um, Ryan White. Remember Ryan White's uh, book? Do I remember Ryan White? Yeah, yeah I remember like, Ryan White. Like, like reading Ryan White's book. Well, and that was the fate that we were all supposed to be assigned to. Right. But, you know, that, there's a big difference there. Bill Clinton spoke at his funeral. Right. Ronald Reagan didn't say the word AIDS until 1987. We knew it was killing people in 81. Mm-hmm. And Ed Koch, uh, I forget it was Governor of New York, uh, uh, Ronald Reagan, no one would say the word AIDS to say, this is a disease that's out there. Here's how to not get it. Mm-hmm. No one would talk about it. They didn't want education about it. They just they, they figured, oh, it's, killing, it's killing the faggots, fine. Let it kill them. I mean, that seemed to be the attitude we were getting. And, and I don't think it was until Ronald Reagan's friend, Rock Hudson, died of it. That right. it first came into his, oh, maybe I should do something. Because nothing. I mean, you know, it was so... I, I consign the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people to Ronald Reagan. If he had Absolutely. spoken I mean, up... that's an outbreak. If he had spoken yeah. up in 83, the number of people who would have gone, oh, oh, that's how it's... Well, maybe I should wear a condom. You know, it, they'd be alive today. In I mean, Ro- young men, I buried half my phone book. Right. You know, young men in their early 20s and late, mid to late 20s, they were all dying. Older men too, but these kids, they were kids. We just found out we could have sex, and now we found out it kills you. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just, it was a horror show, the 80s. Michael and I clung to each other like, like, like nobody's business, like, like, like moss on a tree. We were just like, hang on to each other. I think other. we know how you clung to each other. No, well, you know. Don't try and be nice about well, it. Well, you know, I'm trying to say. <laughs> we don't, I don't want to say who was the moss and who was the tree. We'll get into that later. But, uh, you know, it's just uh, we saved each other's lives, you know? Yeah, the Ryan White thing was, I actually look back and, I, and I'm amazed that my Texas middle school had to read that, you know? And, 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 I'm, and I think it's amazing that that happened. But those were, yeah, no, I'm, I'm putting in the context what you said at the beginning of the hour about, um, about how our culture shifts. The, the conversation. Um, and it shifts in both directions. It seems like it shifts forward and back, mm-hmm. depending on what side of the divide you're on. Yeah. It, it, it shifts all over the place. And I, I like to think that things are getting incrementally better as time goes by. But sometimes it feels like, you know, I don't remember this. Maybe there were this many police shootings of young black men in the 60s. Maybe there were. I don't remember it because it was only news three hours a day. Sure. It was news at noon, six, and 11. That was it. Yeah. Other than that, you had to read the newspaper. Look at that. You had to read. Yeah. But um, so it's, it's, uh, it just feels to me like, and there was just another, I mean, the one, the, the kid in Sacramento, you feel like, what, how, how did, how is it even conceivable that that could have happened with all those mistakes already having been made? I don't want to believe that these cops are racist and they wanted to kill a black kid. But I do believe that they overreacted, reacted too quickly, and reacted out of a fear that came out of something other than the actual fear in the moment. Is that the kid who was shot in his backyard? Shot in his backyard yeah. with a cell phone in his with hand. With a cell phone in his hand. Uh, Stefan Clark? I'm, I'm not sure. I can't remember. I'm sorry. Forgive me for not knowing standing in his backyard well, he was, he was, I think he was chased there. I don't, I don't know all the right. details. It doesn't matter. He was shot once on the side and six or seven times in the back. Okay, that is not a dangerous criminal. Okay, he didn't have a gun. He wasn't firing at them, and they they shot 20 times at him and hit him eight times. What's wrong? What's going on? Where is that fear coming from? Like I say, I don't believe that these are actively racist policemen, but I do believe that there's a fear in them that is fed by something that is not good, and somehow we've got to get rid of that fear. You know, there's, there's a fear. There was a fear of a female president. There was a fear of a black president. And that boiled for eight years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, 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 I don't, I just don't know where all these fears come from. Because that's one thing AA teaches us is that fear and anger are useless emotions. Unless you're being chased by a bear, drop fear out, mm-hmm. of, your, out of your emotional vocabulary. It doesn't get you anywhere. You know, aside from fight or flight... You don't need fear and anger. I mean, they haven't really needed fear and anger since the cavemen. Right. You know, I right. suppose if you're caught in a situation. Sure. But, but the idea of operating out of fear of someone else, of what they're going to do, if we all stopped that, I know it's impossible. I'm speaking of you. Of, of course. Utopia. But, but if we all stopped that, it would all be a lot easier. Jack, what is next, do you believe? For you, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. There's a, there's a few irons in the fire. I, <laughs> well, I got some stuff short, going on. You have your short film? You know, 
I have my short film. I shot a short film in January with Jane Lynch and Kate Mulgrew and Braxton Molinaro. And, uh, and yeah, we got that short film. We're going to be doing festival circuits. We already got into one festival, the uh, IFS 2018 Los Angeles Film Festival. What's the, what's the name of your short? Uh, the Birds Sing Too Loud. The We're on Facebook. Sing too loud. We're on Facebook at The Birds Sing Too Loud on Facebook. Okay. Uh, we have some presence. We're building a website. And, um, and uh, as long as Facebook stays viable, who knows? It may go down any day now. To be ready um, to transfer it into Russian. Uh, I'm great. kidding. That's all right. <laughs> you know, we could, I could, I could, I could do subtitles. Um, but uh, yeah, so the, the birds was fun. I don't know if that's going to turn, turn into anything. It might be a series. Maybe I can sell it. We'll see. Um, and uh, hopefully, I'll be on someone's show, helping them to run it, or running someone's show as well. Who knows? I'm, I'm available. <laughs> I, I was only asking about lunch next month. <laughs> oh, I'm kidding. Is it next month already? <laughs> uh, well, you, you let me know. Geeks gave us, uh, we love you. We've been keeping this thing going for, I guess I've been podcasting 12 years now. Um, and hanging out with folks like Jack definitely makes it worth it. Um, you can find him online. You're on Twitter and all that. I'm on Twitter, but I don't I don't tweet much because it's right. just too much sort of anger and fear and, sure. and, and, and fury that comes at you on Twitter. I'm on I'm on Facebook. Uh, I'm not really, I don't know. Feel, I'm at, at Bumpy Knight on Twitter. If somebody really wants to reach me, I check it once in a while, at sure. Bumpy Knight on, at Twitter. And, um, but mostly I kind of just sort of keep to myself. <laughs> I find uh, that mentally healthier. Well, you'll be hearing whatever Jack does, you'll hear it through us. Yeah. Over here at Geekscape because this is what we do. Uh, we love you, Geekscapists. Um, stay tuned for another episode next week. Uh, over and out. <laughs>